Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. In this episode, I'm bringing you a slightly different conversation. You'll be very used to people talking about different investment opportunities and funds and what they're seeing going on around the world and how to build wealth. In this episode, we're taking a slight change of direction and we're going to focus and talk about how to ensure that for what is many people that they're managing in the wealth situation in terms of their life's work and hopes and aspirations um, and how they manage that, but really how they protect that and how they ensure that ends up with the right people at the right time. We're going to talk to David, who's a lawyer, about asset protection and estate planning, something that a lot of people struggle to actually focus on and uh, see to fruition. We'll talk to David about what it looks like when it works well, what are some of the things that can arise if it doesn't work well, and what are some of the tips and traps. I hope you get a lot out of this episode. I know I surely did. As a reminder, please keep your feedback coming. You can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. Please remember to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the episode. David Seckel, welcome to Inside the Rope. Thank you very much for having me. David, perhaps you can kick away by uh, telling our listeners who is David Seckel and, and what you do. I'm actually happy to say, not embarrassed to say that I'm a lawyer because I'm one of the good guys, not one of the average guys. I think um, the type of law that I practice is one that's, you know, from some years ago when I started doing this, wasn't so trendy, but I think has now become uh, a little bit uh, important for a lot of families in that for a long time I've been looking after substantial families and trying to protect their wealth, trying to set them up into arrangements so they can keep their wealth and importantly to assist them with handing over their wealth down through to future generations. So so would you call that uh, asset protection and estate planning? It is actually. It's, <clears throat> it's actually probably a little bit broader than that in, in it's a holistic family office approach. Mm-hmm. So it's by looking at the family overall, looking at their families, uh, family members, looking at their assets, looking at, uh, you know, at their objectives and desires and, and helping them out along the way to work with their other trusted advisors to make good decisions for the future. And David, what's been your journey to, to that position? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question because I did start out once upon a time in trust and structures, and then I migrated away from trust and structures into a family business. So I went and worked with my father. We raised some capital through private equity or venture capital it started out. We then went through an IPO process. And so I sort of had the benefit of experiencing not just from a legal perspective, but also from a personal one as to how a family would operate in an environment where they were conducting and undergoing a business in a family environment. Mm that had its own um, issues that we had to deal with because I have siblings. We had to deal with how we would manage the family arrangements amongst my brothers and sisters. And, and, uh, and that really helped me give advice to families over the last 20 or 25 years from a different perspective. I could look at it from both a business and a personal experience perspective, not just a technical one. I, I think it's, really interesting. And one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast, you know, we've had 150 something different episodes and listeners know that we, you know, pitch the podcast as being discussions with the leading minds in wealth management. And not not everyone thinks about a lawyer when they think about wealth management straight away. But 
having advised families now for 21, 22 years coming up, um, you soon get to a position perspective, particularly with families with considerable wealth, where they hit a point where the purpose of the money really starts to become important to them. And not only the purpose, but the fact that they've spent in many of their cases, they're uh, a meaningful part of you know their, their life's work and their aspirations is represented in the wealth they've created. And what the purpose of that is and ensuring that ends up with the right people is really important to them. So it's always struck me as quite interesting that families don't always spend a, as much time on that part of the strategy as they do on the investment and the growth part of it. And they seem very, very capable and willing to face into that, but not always willing to face into the part of that, the piece of that advice area that you specialize in. What's been your experience in that area? So I think that's, um, you know, that's a really common pathway in that actually <clears throat> what I find is People often in their personal um, in their personal worlds want to keep things simple. They want to keep it inside their family, and they don't want to have an overcomplicated arrangement. But the other uh, big driver is that I've been lucky enough to have made uh, some some good uh, wealth for the family. I've had good advisors or some good luck, uh, but particularly I now want to keep it. I want to make sure that it stays within the family. And that is, it doesn't necessarily leave through, uh, you know, potential creditors. If there's if there's been a big exit event and I've had to give some warranties, how am I going to preserve the wealth in my family? Or alternatively, I'm a bit worried about uh, my my son's relationship, and I really want to make sure that when I leave my um, my money or my inheritance down to or the inheritance down to my son, that it, it doesn't disappear off in a divorce or other form of uh, of loss of the family wealth. I want to make sure it's there for my children and my grandchildren and I want to keep it inside the family. So, you know, people have uh, have a desire to keep things simple, but it's very important to uh, to look to experience to be able to document without complication uh, that family arrangement to keep that wealth inside the family. And uh, without complication is important, but it actually has to work when it matters. And that's the real key message that I would say, David, is that it has to work when it matters. So when it doesn't matter is when everything is going well. It just doesn't matter if the family stays intact, if there's no issues uh, with, with, uh, with the outside world or with a breakdown in relationships of children or grandchildren. But it does matter when there's an insolvency event for somebody in the line. It really does matter when the family court comes into play because that's when every document is looked at and every um, every dot on the top of the I and every cross on the top of the T is checked. And that's when it makes a difference to have had the right material from the beginning. This is the old uh, plan for the worst, hope for the hope for the best type of scenario in that when those documents get tested. I think one of the things I was really interested in, I've, you know, been uh, part of and helped many clients and facilitated a lot of estate planning the time. Um, in some recent dealings with yourself, um, I think you're talking about the fact that you've acted for more than 100 families with sort of 50 or more million dollars worth of assets. Can you give us an example? And of course, not talking about anyone specifically or something can be identified, of course, but can you talk about an example of what it looks like when something goes really wrong? Okay. So 
a typical example, and it's become any quite a significant part of my practice, and I think of a lot of other people's as well. And that is, it's very difficult for our children or grandchildren to get into the property market. You know, mm-hmm. the real estate properties, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne, Brisbane, have you know gone through the roof over the last few years. And with the, it's not just the LVR, so that's the amount of money that they could borrow against the value of the property. It's actually about the interest coverage now as well. So what we've found particularly in recent times, is there's a very big gap between how much a child or grandchild can borrow, even somebody with a good wage, versus the cost of their home. So mum and dad or grandparents will very commonly lend money to their child or grandchild to get them into an upgraded home or into their first home. So it's those family loans. There's a big trend in in the family loan style arrangement now Um where I kind of want to make sure that I can give my child the money, half a million, a million dollars, whatever the number is, every family is different. Some are more, some are less. But we want to make sure if there's a solvency issue with that child or a breakdown in their relationship, that the money can come back to the family and is not lost outside of the family. So those family documentation or those family loans are super critical. And there's been some very recent decisions both in the Supreme Court but also in the Family Court as to how those loans need to look in order to make them sticky. Very typically, what I find is a family member may have um, been lent some money. There might not even be a loan agreement. In fact, uh, very commonly there's not a loan agreement but there's, there's, a, uh, there's an acknowledgement at the time that I'm going to lend you the money uh, I'll probably won't charge you any interest along the way as a typical conversation. You really don't even have a discussion about when the loan might be repayable. But then a few years down the line, five or six down years down the line, there's a separation of that child from their partner. And then we need to look and go, well, we need to call on that loan so the money can come back to the family. Well, what we do find is that there's a few things that you need to climb over. The first one is, at least in New South Wales, there's a presumption that any advance made to a child is actually a gift, not a loan. And it's up to the lender to be able to demonstrate that there is a real loan there and it wasn't just a story that was created for some other purpose. So documenting it is important. But actually what we do find is a very simple loan agreement is often done. Uh, people go to their conveyancer or their their lawyer who's handling the purchase of the property or even just the, the general lawyer who they've been dealing with to do a, a loan between family members. And there's some great deficiencies that we commonly see in those type of arrangements. First one is that if there's no term for when the money needs to be repaid and the loan agreement is not drafted the right way, after six years, the statute of limitations can kick in and that loan can come to an end. It actually comes to an end even though you may not have been repaid. So when it comes time to enforce it, all of a sudden you find that there's no loan actually left over. The other thing we find is that we might have small advances over time to our children or grandchildren for a lot of purposes. We call it a loan. We go to our accountant and he documents or he or she documents it as a loan in the books of the parents or in the family trust or the family company, which will have its own potential tax implications. But uh, over the course of time, we're recording additional advances. We might move from one house and they upgrade their property or need to renovate. So we're lending more and more money over the course of time. We record it as a loan, but when it comes time to needing to call on that loan in a separation event or a solvency event for the child or grandchild, the loan becomes unenforceable. Why? Because 
actually to have a loan, it needs to be an agreement. There needs to be both parties need to understand and acknowledge that it's an advance, a loan and not a gift. Or if I keep giving my child or grandchild money and they don't acknowledge that it's a loan, then when it comes time to enforcement, it's on to me, on the onus is on me to prove that it was a loan. Uh, and all of a sudden we find that our gift is a gift and not a loan and it doesn't come back. So that ability to keep that asset within the family, re-gift it for the next purchase of the house and move on is sometimes lost and, and that money leaks outside of the family and the purpose of what they were trying to achieve is, is circumvented. Um, how are you seeing it where, you know, we, we have often we have a lot of clients who uh, are, are a little bit older and sometimes there's, uh, you know, mum or dad pass away and then, you know, they they've still might be 65, 70, so they may have, you know, 20, 30 years potentially and they re-partner um, and, you know, it, of course the new partner says, I don't expect anything and I don't want anything. But then, you know, in the interim between something happens, there, there may have been 10 years past. H how do you see that working in cases where it's not optimal or what the family would have expected? Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting um question because there's just a very, very recent decision which has given us some guidance on uh, exactly that point. And um, and what often people try and do if they repartner later in life and they've got children from their first marriage is they want to ensure that they protect their assets in a way so that it's not available to their future partner. So we, we all are very familiar with binding financial agreements and, and through the family court. But there are other... So that's a, a prenup. A Most prenup. people in Australia would see it as the US term of a prenup, but uh, different term in Australia. Yeah, it's a prenup and actually you can do it even after the relationships has started and that's a postnup. You can mm -hmm. do it at the end of the arrangement as well. Family law is um, family law is very interesting in Australia because family law works from a different rule book to company and commercial law. So those principles that apply for... Uh, for asset protection from a solvency perspective, those principles that work for asset protection from uh, from wills and estates or succession, uh, that is uh, very similar to the bankruptcy or solvency issues. But what is very different is family law, and um, and so it's very important that when we're looking at how we're going to address asset protection or the overall goals for the family and how we're going to pass down the wealth to our children or grandchildren we really have to consider the fact that the family law court has much broader powers, much more wide reaching powers than those in the commercial courts. And so our documents have to reflect those, um, those interests as well. And, and David, how, when we talk about um, sort of estate planning asset protection, what does it look like when this is done well? What, what's a family case or the outcomes when it's done well? Because, you know, I think it's one thing and one of the reluctance I see of people to do this is, oh, it's all, you know, it's too hard. I don't want to start fights now. I'll, you know, when I'm gone, you know, they can deal with it then. Um, what does it actually look like when it's done well and it's planned for well? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's a good question. And, you know, one of those uh, questions I very regularly get asked by the parents is, should we engage with our children early in the piece? Should we tell them what our succession plan is? Um, and how are we going to uh, how are we going to manage that side for not just for when we pass away, but if we were to lose capacity? Because you know, right now, 
lot of people are living you know, a lot longer. And so there's, mm-hmm. there's often long periods of a loss of capacity. That is where our children haven't got their inheritance yet. So mm. they're really acting under a power of attorney on our behalf. Uh, and, and they're not necessarily under an obligation as the powers of attorney to give full effect to our ultimate succession plan in the will. So one of the more important documents in modern times is the power of attorney. Mm-hmm. And it's not just because of that long period of time in which we could have a potential loss of capacity, but it's also in a couple of other contexts. And one of those is relating to superannuation. Uh, there's a lot of um, attention in the media through the course of this year as to um, as how do we manage our super um, immediately before death. So that is, how do we make it a member's benefit instead of a member's death benefit? Um, and so powers of attorney have all had to be redrafted to give express or should have been redrafted to give express powers to deal with your member's balance, to deal with what is going to happen in your fund and to empower those that you're going to trust as your power of attorney to make decisions in respect to super prior to death. That complication um, gets a little bit um uh, more convoluted at the moment because we're still waiting for some final outcomes. There's been three private rulings this year, or at least three private rulings in um, in if we um, use a power of attorney to make a decision to commute a balance prior to death and then the person actually passes away before those funds are distributed to the, to the member. So that is, um, will it be treated as a member's death benefit? Or will it be treated just as a member's benefit? And there's big, often quite significant tax outcomes, mm-hmm. uh, depending on which one it is. The ATO uh, has uh, has taken the view um, at the moment, and I think there's quite a long way to go as to where this will finally land. Um, on the one hand, you really do need to act early to withdraw your benefit prior to your passing away in order to have certainty that you're not going to be subject to additional tax which really means our powers of attorney need to act early, well before we're going to pass away, or alternatively as we age, is to make sure that we can start shaping our super so or our investments in super um, to a way that we can easily have some liquidity if the need arises in a short time. So where did you land on when people ask you, should they inform uh, the other family members of their succession and estate planning uh, what, what's your general advice to uh, clients who ask that? Oh, I think I've got some battle scars on that one. Um, in real terms, I think every family is just so different. Mm-hmm. I think the biggest mistake a lot of families make is um, is this. I've been working in a business or been investing and I have some experience and I've built up a lifetime of experience with my trusted advisors, as an example. But um, I really want to start engaging my adult children alongside of me to give them familiarity about how to manage the family's wealth after I pass. But sometimes I'm really trying to put a square peg into a round hole. I'm mm-hmm. trying to, to make children who have had, or even adult children who have had no exposure or no interest in, um, in, in areas where they really should be um, only making decisions with proper advice. And that's where the trusted advisor really comes in. It's been overseas in the US and in Europe and and in a lot of parts of Asia. We've seen for a lot of years, trusted advisor relationships. We've had true family office environments. In Australia, we do use that word family office and family office advisors quite a lot, but they're not really in the traditional sense. Uh, So rather than making the children um, 
put that square peg into the round hole, mm. better that I have really trusted advisors around me to give the children the guidance to let the children make the right decisions, but not necessarily investment decisions or structuring decisions or, or succession decisions. So, you know, I'm not all about getting the children actively involved in every part of my world. Well, it's interesting. I know I uh, caught up with our chairman, Steve Tucker, recently, and we were talking about this exact issue. And his observation was uh, anecdotally, I think that, uh, you know, in a typical family, um, you know, you'll have one child who's very interested and perhaps capable. You'll have one who's very uninterested um, and you'll have one that wants to sort of um, you know, give it give it all to to Greenpeace or or similar. So you do get those divergent sort of views once you introduce the next generation. Um, and of course, you know, as you flagged, all these families can be so different. Um, well, just on that, Dave, it's that's a really good point. And because of that point of difference between the children, we actually will see a real point of difference in how. Um, they personally use the wealth when it's finally succeeded down to them. So some children will have done very well on their own account and they'll, they're happy to keep investing, happy to keep growing. Others will want to pay off their mortgage and others will want to pass it down to a grandchild or to charity or to give it away. And so because every individual often has different objectives in how they want to go about doing things, not just their philosophical approach but their personal approach, it's very important to to plan for that as part of the overall succession plan. And again, that's not just in your will, that's really in the power of attorney as well. So who's going to be making decisions is super critical. And I know for today, I'll talk about the power of attorney a lot, but for me, that's really the genesis of a lot of succession planning. Power of attorney is somebody who will be empowered to make, or some group of people who will be empowered to make financial decisions on my behalf when I lose capacity, that is before death. So long mm. before the will comes into play. So we talked briefly about why it's so important for a power of attorney in the context of superannuation, being able to make decisions in relating to super. But it's also very important that you have an enduring power of attorney to start with. The reason I say that is that in New South Wales, at least, if you don't have an enduring power of attorney, then it's not like one of your family members can simply be appointed to sit in your shoes and to manage your financial affairs if you were to lose capacity. It's to the contrary. In fact, it's compulsory that the uh, public trustee sits in and has oversight over the top of the financial manager. So the financial manager will commonly be, for example, the spouse and the accountant, and they will have to be subject to supervision of guardian and trustee, which really means that things do not stay in the family and there's not an orderly conduct of your personal affairs if you don't have the power of attorney. The power of attorney is a super important document. And, and in substantial families, that's families who have, you know, significant investable assets, uh, it's very important in the power of attorney as well, not just to have a single appointee, uh, you know, some of the things that we see with single appointees, if I nominate just one child, there's some really difficult situations that I've seen arise over the years with that, um, with that circumstance. First one is, um, and obscenely, it is possible that if you make your child your sole power of attorney and your sole executor as an example, and then you lose capacity, if that child's spouse leaves them, then there can ironically or interestingly be a family law claim against your inheritance, even though you haven't inherited it yet, 
because they're the power of attorney and in control and they're the executor and in control, the, um, the family court can, um, in certain circumstances, um, allocate the, the, um, the, the, the child's, uh, um, estate with their, with their ex-spouse to, um, to a disproportionate approach because of that in guaranteed inheritance. So that's one side why we don't make a single person. But the other main reason is because we only know that person to be who they are today. We don't know if they're going to have an accident and they're not going to have the same cognitive capacity tomorrow that they have today. So it's very important when selecting your powers of attorney to really consider um, with a balanced approach and a bit of a check and a balance if this happens to me, who should step in? And ideally, I like to see at least two or three appointors, uh, appointees. But in real terms, if I'm going to have three, I like decisions to be made by any two of them. So if mm -hmm. somebody's traveling, somebody's away, somebody's you know, not talking to someone else, at least decisions can continue to be made. So it ended up with a stalemate that's quite workable as well. If I get that situation right you're talking about, because that's a, a big thing and we talk, you talk quickly through it, I think you're basically saying there if mum and dad are of means, um, they might be quite elderly in nursing homes or similar, um, adult children could be 55, 65, sole beneficiary, sole executor, sole power of attorney, uh, go through a relationship breakdown, spouse could potentially have claim over mum and dad's estate even though they haven't died. That's right. Unbelievable. It'll be an apportionment of the of the pool that's available will go in the balance of the ex-spouse. It's terrible. And even if the outcome through the family court proceedings doesn't um, doesn't result in that, that's going to be threatened, it's going to become part of the claim and it's going to be something your child unnecessarily needs to deal with. It's crazy, right? Wow. Crazy. And it just shows, you know, an easy easy, easy thought process is don't just have one person have two or three. You have two or three and that negates that issue, does it? And this is when we start moving into the same lessons have been learnt from the US and from Europe and that is by having a trusted advisor as one of the appointees, you sort of move away from that single person risk. So if you don't have anyone else in your world, um, it's often quite helpful to look outside to trusted advisors. Trusted advisors have insurance, they have experience, they have an impartial um, a partial attitude towards things and often they've sat with the person, gone through what their real wishes and desires and thoughts are so that they can give effect uh, holistically to the approach of the individual uh, rather, than, um, uh, rather than potentially the child that hasn't done and sat down with the parent to the same extent. And David, you talked talking about power of attorney here being such a powerful and important document and you talked about it coming into operation when somebody's un unable to act for themselves. Um, I've seen and I've seen over the years different advice from different lawyers in terms of when the power of attorney becomes into operation. I've seen one set of lawyers say, no, no, you should only make this come into operation when you lose the ability to manage your affairs yourself because it's looking after your financial affairs whilst you're alive while you're alive, your, your real property. Um, and there's others who are saying, well, actually, no, that then opens up a door on a dispute on whether you've got the ability to act for yourself or not. Um, you, you should have it acting, you should have it activated from the day it's signed. But then the, the counter to that is that's an extremely powerful document. What's stopping, you know, a disgruntled son, child, daughter, 
selling you up and moving to Las Vegas with all the money before you discover. Um, where do you sit on uh, how that should be drafted or, or, or put in place? Yeah, I'm a believer at the moment in taking a very simple approach because I'm not sure whether you've been to open a bank account lately or been down to be identified in a bank lately. Yep. It is just so difficult to prove who you are, to prove what's going on with the trust. And then you get down there and they go, well, that document was certified three months and two days ago. You've got to go and get it again. So to, um, to, to be real, what I like to do is in powers of attorney, I know that you can put some um, some words in there which will say it'll only come into effect if I lose capacity. It only comes into effect in these certain circumstances. But if your attorneys then need to take that document down to the bank and the officer in the bank is looking over that document and says, okay, so now please prove that they've lost capacity. Well, that's not as easy as you might think. It's actually well, quite... Well, if somebody's got dementia, um, you know, qu quite often they don't realise that they've lost capacity. That's exactly right. But then you get a doctor's certificate or a medical certificate from the from the institution that somebody might be in. Well, that's very private information. That's very, very personal information about somebody that is now going across to the bank's hands. Now, that may not worry some people, but uh, actually getting a current certificate can be quite difficult sometimes. And then every bank will have a different policy on, is it three months? Is it one month? How am I sure? Do I need two doctors or do I need one doctor? That's very difficult. Um, it, it just adds a level of complexity that's just unnecessary. So what I tend to say to to people is, look, don't put um, a period as to when it commences. Let it start immediately. But let's put it into a safe place. Let's set up a system which will protect you so that it's there and it's available for you for whenever you want it changed, whenever you want it delivered up, and that it's not available to your attorneys, your appointees, until there's an event and then let's have a let's have a gatekeeper let's have somebody or some group yourself david myself whoever it might be be that gatekeeper as to when the document can be released let us be the judge from a from a perspective as to whether there's a loss of capacity not a loss of capacity it, it's not that difficult but again it comes down to the benefit of having trusted advisors mm -hmm. now we've talked about power of attorney and a lot of people when they're talking about their estate planning documents also talk about an enduring power of guardianship. Do you see that necessary part for most people to have? Yeah. Enduring, enduring appointment of enduring guardianship. Look, it's, it's again, one of those baseline documents. In fact, I rarely let anybody out the door without a new power of attorney and a new appointment of enduring guardianship. It's not, they're not difficult documents, but they are essential. There's again, been some recent changes, at least in New South Wales, uh, in appointments of enduring guardianship with restrictive powers. So that is the ability to use chemical or physical restraint. So if I have a car accident or I'm changing a light bulb and I fall off the ladder and hit my head um, or, uh, or I have a, uh, a disease or, a, or an issue with cognitive capacity, I might um, be getting up to go to work at two o'clock in the morning. The only thing is that I may not have been working for the last six months, even though I believe that I am. So I might need to um, to have a lock put on the door so I don't go wandering or go off to work in the middle of the night. So that type of restrictive power, it's super important. And that's just about, you know, having a refresh or an update on, on documents. And I think, uh, you know, one of the questions I do often get asked is how often should I come and have these documents reviewed? It's not for everybody to have an annual or every two year review. It really is up to the trusted advisors that are in their world to know 
when there's been a change in circumstances, a change in laws, a change in, um, you, you know, in, in trends to make the, the, the client's documents appropriate. Um, and so uh, it is now time to do that for both power of attorney because of the superannuation issues, but it's also important to do it for guardianship. And traditionally, some of those changes that are going on in people's lives tend to be what births, marriages, deaths, significant relationships entered into those type of events. Yeah, certainly marriage uh, is super important because any will that you had previously will cease to have effect. Um, important times are really when you start having children. Um, mm. You know, it's important to uh, to have a proper plan for your children, for yourself, and for your children. Uh, if there's a substantial change in your financial position, if you if you have um, a bit of luck and some of your investments have have um, have come good earlier than you potentially expected, it's important to then start looking, okay, well, I have all these assets in my own name. Is that ideal? I have assets in a family trust. Is that ideal? How should I really be looking at things? And I've got to make sure that my estate plan works very well with my financial plan. They actually have to dovetail together, have to work together. And the trusted advisor relationship that I keep talking about is is not any one person. It's actually a collective. David, we've gone through here and we've talked a lot of things where things go sideways. What sort of percentage of times do you think things go sideways versus actually the assets ending up pretty much how the person would have liked them to have ended up? Yeah, it's um, it's a very low percentage, of course, when uh, things go wrong. Uh, but it's important that the documents are there for when they do, because the cost of the family is very high. It's not just measured in litigation, which can be horrendously expensive, but it also can be measured in how your planning objective is just not met. If somebody brings a claim on an estate, um, it's it can be very disruptive for those family members that you really want to benefit from your estate. Uh, it's not just the financial side either. What I really unfortunately see is that um, no or not many families are perfect. And mm. when mum and dad start losing capacity, what I often see is that their issues start to, to sort of rise to the surface between the kids, the, 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 the things that bothered them when they were 12 and 16 and 26 really come out now that mum and dad aren't around uh, or around less. And so there's there's often disruption between siblings, mm. which, uh, which, which can easily be dealt with by mum and dad by a good plan. One of the things you touched on earlier that I'd like to just circle back on is, you know, often they're very, very different circumstances. But one of the things I've seen with families with considerable means is quite often um, they've built the wealth through um, certain assets or family businesses and, and there's often a desire to try and keep those children in those assets together and as you flagged before they all have different things going on in their lives and their actual needs and desires can often become quite separate and one of the things I've noticed is the tension that creates when they're trying to have the one strategy for an asset or a business, which really needs a unified strategy and support, can be just very, very difficult and very divergent. If someone needs liquidity to fund, you know, five kids at private school and there's someone else with no children, um, you know, they're, they're, they're 
income needs are very, very different and hard to um, correlate with each other and, and tying them together in that way. Um, I've often seen, you know, separate fa- testamentary trusts set up for each child and the division of assets to allow them to go and row their own uh, canoe race, if you'd like, rather than all being tied together as, as quite beneficial. Um, before I leave you, are there any sort of tips and traps you'd like to uh, leave the listeners with? Yes. I mean, there is. the two things. Update your power of attorney, make sure that it's appropriate, but really do consider having multiple appointees, two or three appointees. But most importantly, make sure that there's uh, alternates in the power of attorney. The standard form does allow for an alternate, but actually the Power of Attorney Act also allows for those people to choose their own successors because if you're young, David, and something happened to you, your power of attorney theoretically could be in use for 30 or 40 or 50 years. So what we don't want to happen is your appointees have some, you know, need to retire for their own personal reasons and there's no document there. So then we revert back to that unpleasant situation we talked about. So a well-drafted, well-considered power of attorney dealing with super, super important. But now um, it's, it's all about... Uh, how we're going to lend our money to our children, how we're going to lend our money to our grandchildren and what that might look like. So a well-crafted or well-considered inter-family loan agreement, super important as well. Well, David, that's been fantastic. I really thank you for your input today and joining us inside the rope. Now, one of the things we've come up with recently, and I'm slack, I'm um, I'm coming up, it's a new thing that we're doing, is one of the ways to thank our guests, people like yourself, to sharing your knowledge that's very helpful um, and, and beneficial to a lot of our listeners to allow them to recognise and call out or give a plug, if you'd like, to a not-for-profit if you've got one. If not, we can come up with one. But if you've got one that you'd like to plug or mention, um, now would be the great time. Salvation Army, no question about it. The Salvos are extraordinary. They really do uh, give help to those who need. And, um, and for me, the first time I came across the Salvos was... I was visiting a criminal courtroom. Now, I'm not a criminal or I have nothing to do with crime, but I was interested one day and my wife was interested. So we went and sat in the courtroom in the Supreme Court and um, and watched a couple of uh, matters go before, uh, before the court. And uh, the salvos, unbeknown to me, were actually present in all of the major courts, local court, district court and Supreme Court. And uh, and one of the members of the salvos came over to office, uh, offer offer a a gentle touch to my wife and I thinking that we were the family of the accused in that criminal case. And it made me realise that these people are giving selfless support to those who really genuinely need it. And uh, and so for many years, I've uh, been a strong supporter and advocate of the Salvos. I've I'm a uh, uh, do pro bono work for the Salvos over the years. They were definitely worthwhile. Terrific. Thanks for joining us at Inside the Rope. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.